Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Hanukkah time, and I figured I'll say a few words about Hanukkah, perhaps, and uh, share a few things that are not so well known. I was uh, just got back, I was in Fort Lee for Shabbos. Fort Lee, New Jersey, a scholar residence, um, giving whatever talks I did over there. But then on mostly Shabbos, Saturday night, I went to my nephew's in Muncie, in Muncie, and we had a nice evening with a bunch of people that came, and I spoke in, in general terms about Hanukkah, in terms of rabbinic history. Uh, you know, what do the rabbinic sources, the, the, the quote-unquote, the from sources, well, that's not a good example either, because there are a lot of from sources about Hanukkah that are believed and are spurious, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, the Book of Maccabees, uh, Miguel's Tainus particularly, that's what the Gemara quotes from, and what, how do they describe the historical Hanukkah? That was my remarks there. Uh, I think, if I remember, I think it was like an hour or something like that. I actually have a talk I gave many years ago to uh, a friend of mine put online. It's a video. If you look it up, you'll see it. So, you know, just my name, Rabbi David Katz, and something like the true story of Hanukkah. It's from almost 30 years ago, so I look a little bit younger. Uh, some people look younger years ago. Anyhow, uh, so if you really want like a two-hour presentation, if you're a glutton for punishment on the historical Hanukkah, uh, that might be where you want to go, uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing. I would only, and so it was very, by the way, it was a very nice uh, uh, meeting, and I got to meet, some of you probably will be listening to this by the time, this podcast has worked its way through its listenership, and I was able to cl- connect some <laughs> some faces, you know, with uh, names and vice versa, and it was a pleasure to meet everybody, and I'm hoping we'll do it again sometime. I have to go actually to Livingston in uh, in um, ooh, February, maybe we'll do something later. I think that's also not far away from Muncie. I'll talk to Yosh. Um, that's as far as that goes. I do want to thank the people, by the way, who in the last week or so, last five, uh, have uh, made, a number of you made contributions to help me out, as I said before, with the expenses, but now that uh, I have to buy all this new equipment, and uh, I appreciate each and every person according to what he and she uh, contributed. We're about a third of the way there, so it actually was nice progress. I do continue to appeal. <laughs> I got two-thirds of the way to go. I do need help with this to make these uh, podcasts work and the lectures and everything uh, for all the equipment. So if, if you can, those of you who haven't been able to contribute until now, I would have very much appreciate if you could send something in because uh, this is what I need to, to provide the what's the infrastructure. But it's, I'm not a one-man show here. But anyway, having said that, let me... Uh, so I do really thank everybody who uh, contributed so far. And I hope more will... I do want to uh, get down to business, and that is, I, first an aside, and then my main remarks. I mentioned, for those of you who were there the other night, that Hanukkah is, when you get to the historical Hanukkah, not the Hanukkah of meta-history, which I'll talk about in a second, or the Hanukkah of Lumdus, which is a separate department, there's a whole division 
of that, you know, of the what I call the Hanukkah of the Yeshiva world. That's fine. All those suggas, and that's a separate schmooze. But uh, a very interesting note of Yehuda on that, by the way, with Thomas Hesed. But anyhow, uh, I'm talking about the Hanukkah of history. So, what happened? What actually happened in the Maccabean Revolt? Uh, here's a question of sources. Well, there aren't any from sources, hardly. You just have the, basically the Megillus Tinus, and maybe a Chazal here and there. Just to make one point, the word Maccabee, I probably mentioned this last year, I'm sure, the word Maccabee doesn't appear in rabbinical literature. Uh, not in Gemara, Babli Yushalmi, and not in Medesh Rabbah, Medesh Nakum, and all those places. Now, there is a later work called Miguel Santiochus, which was believed by many to be an authentic work, describing Hanukkah, and there it does mention Maccabee, but as far as I'm aware, it's not really an authentic work. And uh, the real historians don't pay attention to that, even though there were Rishonim that did. But then again, the other Rishonim who believed that Yosefon is identical to Josephus, which he's not. So this is always a mess when you get to Hanukkah. How do you pull it apart uh, in a from way? It's, uh, you know, which, which sources do you privilege one over the other? It's a mess. But uh, as I always like to point out, the Darius Rishonim, who's the, the, the Yitzhak Isaac Levi Venowitz, who started the Agoda, he wrote this uh, five, six volume business in great detail about the Vaishani period, and he totally ignores the, uh, as I call, spurious uh, uh, works, and these uh, off-the-wall midrashim. What we call a medrash is medrash rabbin, shnachuma, maybe pick of lesser, a couple places like that. Not just because somebody says he found a medrash on Hanukkah somewhere, doesn't mean it's an actual medrash. So you got to watch out for that. Having said that, I gave a whole talk last night based on a, on a Rizal, uh, what they attribute to Rizal about the Pach Shemin, but you identify that as uh, a vort. Here I'm talking about history. Now, um, in this case, uh, what is there in the outside sources about Hanukkah? Do the Greeks and the Romans actually speak about Hanukkah? As far as I'm aware, they do not, with the, with the slightest of exceptions, but the exceptions are very interesting, actually. Uh, first of all, you have Tacitus, the Roman uh, historian, real mumser, who uh, always is dissing the Jews. And, you know, he has this short business where he basically says, listen, Antiochus was a nice guy. Jews, are, we all know what, what, what jerks the Jews are. And uh, just to, it's a short passage. He says, since, uh, let's see, where's Antacitus here? Uh, he's the one who said the Jews had leprosy. That's why they kicked out of Egypt, all this kinds of business. Uh, but all I can tell you is, oh, I can't find, I hear it is after the Macedonians became a great power, King Antiochus tried to free the Jews of superstition and give them Greek ways. But he was prevented from changing this most loathsome of peoples, for the better, by his war with the Parthians. And then when the Macedonians were weak and the Parthians had not reached full stature and the Romans were far away, the Jews appointed over themselves kings. There is truth to that, but it's an anti-Semitic spin. I mean, what a hilarious he was. That, that's just who Tacitus was. He was an aristocratic Roman, Talk about him some other time. <laughs> not as a not as a yard site podcast, though. Uh, however, there was another guy, for what it's worth, uh, Diodorus Siculus, who uh, I know is not a household name. And uh, he uh, he actually lived in the time of Josephus. He lived in the time of Korban Beis Amigdash. So that's about 200 years after Hanukkah, uh, right? About 200 years after Hanukkah. And uh, this you can find online, if you're that type. You look up Diodorus Siculus. And he wrote the Bibli Bibliotheca Historica, which means the historical library. And he actually has a passage 
Let me just find it for a sec. Hold on for one second. Where he talks about he talks about a later uh, Antiochus, Antiochus the seventh, not the guy from Hanukkah, but later. In order to know the real full, I hope I didn't skip anything here. That's taken enough time. Now I get to what I wanted to talk about today, and that is uh, the following. Uh, Hanukkah is really a biblical holiday. You tell me, what are you talking about? It is mentioned in the Bible. What are you talking about? Obviously not in the Torah, it's not in the Vim, but it is in the Ksuvim. What are you talking about? The answer is the book of Daniel. If you read Daniel, which I don't think so many do, you'll see what had been taken to be sometimes oblique and sometimes bl- more blatant. References to Antiochus the fourth and the, and the and the Greek persecution of the Jewish religion. Uh, it's quite remarkable. But I can tell you right now, all those who are into the meta-history, not the history, of Hanukkah, have always concentrated on the book of Daniel. The most obvious example that would come to mind for most of you would be the Maral of Prague, who writes his whole book on Hanukkah with no reference to the Maccabean Wars, almost, or hardly, but the overwhelming references to the book of Daniel, because in the book of Daniel, we have the doctrine of the four kingdoms. Uh, in chapter 2, and then in chapter 7, and then there's a reference in chapter 8, and in 11. So 2, 7, 8, and 11. I'm giving this because you can look it up on your own when you have time. Uh, and my advice to you, if you're listening to this podcast, most likely you might find the Hebrew and Daniel on the air make a little hard. Get the Living Nach. You know, there's that three-volume set. Get the Living Nach on Ksuvim, and follow it through in the book of Daniel. It's all in English, and it's an easy English. It's dumbed-down English, and they actually have good notes. Uh, it's also true, by the way, that the art school recently came out with a Manukad edition of Daniel and Ezra Nehemiah Daniel with all the nice classic Mephoshim. They don't help that much, but they help somewhat. And uh, and they do have the Malbim in there, and he's helpful. Uh, and you want to, to see the uh, Barbanel. But it doesn't matter. The classic Mephoshim are just fine for our purposes. Now, I'll get right down to the chase. What's happening over here? Well, in chapter 2, the king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He can't figure it out. He can't even remember it. And by the time the story's over, Daniel, who's a Jewish uh, servant of his, can figure it out. And he tells the king that he saw a giant statue. Uh, the uh, and, and the head was gold. And then the next part of the body was uh, silver. And the next part of the body was um, uh, bronze. And the lower part, lowest part of the body was iron. Iron mixed with clay. Okay. Here, here's the passage. The head of statue of fine gold, chest and the arms were of silver, belly and thighs were bronze, legs it was iron, and his feet were part iron, part clay. And then a little stone knocked the whole thing down and uh, totally destroyed it, literally smashed it in smithereens, and that stone grew and became a giant mountain. That's the end of the dream. And then he says, what's the shot of the dream? And uh, the interpretation, and again, I'm reading English translation, Nebuchadnezzar is telling King, I'm sorry, Daniel, the Jew, is telling Nebuchadnezzar, I'll tell you the meaning. You, O king of kings, etc., 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 you're the head of gold. So the head of gold represented Babel. After you will rise another kingdom inferior to yours, that will be Persia. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the entire earth. So that's always taken to be Greece, Yavan. Okay? What do you mean, a whole over the whole earth? They don't literally mean the entire planet, but Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. So between the Greece plus Persian Empire, in those in that frame of reference, in the biblical frame of reference, that's called the whole earth, okay? Don't give me any math and science obligation. I know Arabia is not part of it, but, you know, the, the, that's considered like the Gantzabel, 
And then the fourth kingdom will be strong as iron, and it was be it wrecks everything. It will crush and smash all the others. And that will be Rome. That is the usual way of understanding the idea of the doctrine of the four kingdoms or the four Goliaths. And ever since then, you know, Jewish thought has been very heavily involved with with quadripartite uh, divisions. I think I mentioned this on Hanukkah. Not that you have to go back and listen to my Hanukkah podcast. I mean, I'm sorry about Pesach when I did the Seder. I'm sure I mentioned because the Seder is replete with fours, and all the Mafarshim, you know, uh, apply this four, this, this like four sons. So the Chacham is Kenegad Chreis Babel, and you know the Roshabi Kenegad Persia, and the Tom Kenegad Yavan, and the Zalman Kenegad Edom, and that kind of thing. And it's all over Chazal. Uh, once this was in the Book of Daniel. So, Sula Mutsavartsa Roshamagir Shamaima, that's one is Babel, one is Persia, one is Greece, and one is Rome. Matter of fact, at the very beginning, Vartsa Hosa Tova Vova Choshapanesom. Tohu is Babel, I guess. Bohu would be Persia. Choshech is Greek because they made dyes in the Jews dark. And and Rome would be Apanetahom, right? Because the Gauls of Rome, which we're in now, according to rabbinic thought, is like the home is endless. You know what I mean? It's, it's long. So that means that if you're a Maral or people like that or a Hasinim or a Vutner or those coming after that, you want to concentrate on Vasepis is it bronze, you know? Uh, what is there a difference between bronze and silver and gold? And you want to understand the symbolism of that. But that ain't all. Because uh, all I'm pointing out to you is that Yavin has always classically been taken to be one of these. And the Gauls Yavin refers to the Hanukkah episode, meaning when the Jews were controlled by the Greeks and had trouble from them. Because uh, when the Jews were not controlled by the Greeks, just part of the Greek civilization, that's not what they're referring to. Now, um, on the other hand, if you look at chapter 7, Daniel himself has a, a wild dream. In chapter 7, he says, I, I saw, again, I'm reading to you in English, I watched and there were four winds of heaven swept out to the great sea, meaning there was a big storm. This is all in the dream. And the four great monsters, different from the other, emerge, and there'll be four. The first one was like a lion, but had the wings of a vulture. And I saw they plucked its wings, they lifted off the ground and made a human heart. Then there was a second beast, which resembled a bear, with three ribs in its mouth, and they said, Arise, devour much flesh. It's an Aramaic. Then I saw a third one. That's us, that's Yovan. Looked like a leopard, and on its back had four wings, like that of a bird, and the beast had four heads. So you got a leopard with four heads and four wings, and it was given dominion. It was very powerful. So if you're Maral, or somebody like that, or Pachat Yitzhak, so uh, you want to say, Vos Epis, that Yovan is a leopard as opposed to a lion or a bear or something like that. Why a leopard? And then why would it have four wings? See, four, it itself is part of the four. And it itself has four, four heads and four wings. And what's the, what's the symbolism of the wings? And so on and so forth. And then it goes to talk about Rome and, and all the rest. And once again, by the time it's all over, the four monsters are destroyed and Mashiach takes over. So that's the idea that you get the four Gauluses, followed by, uh, what shall I say, followed by the, uh, the happy ending. And this means that Jewish history is understood to be teleological, which means we already know the end. The story has been written. We just don't know which part we're in. Are we in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, or Act 4? We hope we're at the end, you and I, but we don't know. Um... In the later Middle Ages, they thought one of them might be Yishmael, and they had to reconfigure it. But in the time of Chazal, uh, in about Yishmael, theirs were nothing. Sand jockeys in the time of Chazal, they were nothing. And the Roman Empire was it. So 
to the Chazal. The first one is Bavel, the second one is Paras, the third one is Yavin, the fourth one is Edom, which is wrong without any question. Okay? Like, there's like a million Chazals on this. Fine. So how does Yavin fit into that? So, so far, I didn't read you anything in the Neob in which there's any explicit reference to Greece. I simply pointed out that since it's talking about four empires, four kingdoms, four Goluses, if you wish, and Chazal, way back when, always, at all times, interpreted in terms of Babylonia, Persia, Greece, Rome. So Greece, which is the persecution of the Greeks, has been sort of embedded in the text of the, of the Book of Daniel, way back when, based on rabbinic interpretation. However, there's a much more explicit reference, and that would be in chapter 8, and that would be uh, of Daniel, where you have the division of the ram and the unicorn. I actually did this last night. In Baltimore, I have every year a Hanukkah party. Uh, my good friend Ed Hoffman, the caterer, puts it on. Where it's a very fancy affair at his home, and uh, for all my uh, sponsors here in Baltimore and uh, and technicians and all the people that help with my uh, lectures and podcasts and all that. It's a whole bunch of people involved. And so Baruch Hashem, make a nice uh, event every year. I do I want to thank uh, Ed Hoffman and his partner, Yako Fader. They really put together a very fancy catered affair. Um, so I said a few words along these lines, but now I'll say it a little more fully. In the uh, eighth chapter of Daniel, it says that he had a dream. Now, Daniel's like, he's not exactly a Navi to Gemara, it says, but he's not regularly you or me either. He's in, you know, like a lower level Nebuah. Uh, and this in the Torah Shabbat itself. And he said, I saw, uh, I was standing on the, by Shushan Abira in his dream, and uh, I raised my, and I saw a lone ram. So he sees a ram. R-A-M, a ram. Standing for the river, the ram has two horns. The horns are high, with one horn higher than the other, and the higher one coming up last. So, imagine a ram with one horn, and then the other one starts growing, and growing, growing, bigger than the first. I saw the ram budding towards the west, and the north, and the south. So the ram has fights with uh, other animals, and beats them all. None of the beasts were able to withstand the ram, and none could save from his hand. He did as he wished, and he grew great. So the ram was extremely powerful, and killed every uh, contender. But then, as I was com- contemplating this, Daniel says in the dream, a he goat uh, appeared from the west, traversing the face of the earth without ever touching the ground. See, so it's like a movie, you know. He sees from far away an animal coming from far to attack the ram, but it's like flying uh, low level, you know, you know, like the Israeli pilots, you know, low level above the ground, never actually touches the ground. But it's going in the direction of the uh, of the ram. Okay, uh, it's called the Tzvir Ha'izim, you know, the the he goat. Now uh, the goat had a conspicuous horn on its forehead. So basically, it's a unicorn. The uh, idea of the unicorn you find in the Bible itself. But I repeat, this is a dream. You don't say it was Mama's unicorn. And uh, he approached the two-horned ram, and I saw standing by the river and charged at him with furious force. So the unicorn attacks the ram. I saw him reach the ram and launch into him. So basically, the unicorn is going to kill the ram. He's going to have a, a hard uh, attack on the ram. Meaning uh, he was he did with Mariris. He 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 you know he, he lunged at him, and uh, he says Vayachis and he struck the ram, and he busted him. Okay, uh, he reached the ram and launched into him. He struck the ram and broke both the horns. The ram was powerful. Stand him. He threw him to the ground. So basically, he killed the ram. 
So the unicorn killed the ram. Even though the unicorn is smarter, smaller, I'm sorry, but it has that sleek power and concentrated with the horn, it will take out the ram. And then what happens in the dream? Okay, what happens is with Zim Higdod Mob, the ram grew very big. So he sees in the dream the ram literally grow, grow, grow. But at his peak, the great horn broke. And it's placed four little horns uh, sprung up towards the four corners of heaven. Now you'll see in a minute that this referenced the Greek Rome, uh, the Greek wars against the Persians, and the conquest or Macedonian, if you want to be exact, and uh, the conquest of the Persian Empire by Alexander the Great. He'll be the great horn. You'll see that it, the text says this in a minute, uh, and we do indeed know that Alexander died young, so he conquered the ram, he conquered the Persian Empire, but then he died. And it says the horn broke, and four little horns sprung out from the different parts of where the horn used to be. One to the north, south, one to the east, and to the west. Four of them. So uh, that's what happened. Alexander died, and his, his empire was divided among his generals. From one of them came forth a diminutive horn. And from one of those horns came a little horn, which grew exceedingly toward the south, the east, and towards the Eretz Hasvi, and towards the desired land. In this case, Eretz Hasvi doesn't mean the land of the deer, but from the word Svi, like Svi, Maser, Lona, Arisa, it's Aramaic for, um, for Rotsa, right? So, Eretz Yisrael. So, the, one of the horns grows uh, uh, towards Eretz Yisrael. That, my friends, is Antiochus IV. That's how uh, uh, classic Mepharshim uh, will, will explain it, okay? That's the classic way, the Barmanel, the Malbim, and all those will go in, in, into that. Now, uh, advantage, what do we know about this, uh, this ram? I mean, this uh, he-goat, I'm sorry, this uh, horn that's attacking towards Israel. It grew as great as the heavenly host. Here, here it gets very um, uh, enigmatic. Anyway, the whole dream is enigmatic. But he's trying to uh, understand. This is about Tigdal Shamayim. The language is very funny. He grew Shamayim up to the host of heaven. And he knocked down the stars and the, uh, the host of heaven and trampled them. So it means, if, if you, like the Rashi and Mepharshim say that the, 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 the angel, the stars of heaven are the Jews. So as he knocked down the leading Jews, the Kohen Gadol, basically, and crushed them and trampled them. And he reached the commander of the host, which means he attacked God. Okay? Now, how can you attack God? You do your best. So Rashi, over here, on the Pasuk, says, that'll curse out God or something like that. Meaning he'll blaspheme. If you storm the temple in Jerusalem, if you strip away all the stuff, if you put up Chazer and, 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 and other things like that, in the basic English, that means you're attacking God. You're attacking his house. Hurling some of the hosts and stars and trampling them. Vaunt itself against the commander of the host. And because of this, okay? And because of this, um, it says, we meant, um, uh, the carbon, t the the daily offering was discontinued. Okay, so umimenu huram hatamid, b'ushlam chong mikdashim. The tamid, the carbon tamid, will be huram will be taken away, and that, of course, is what the Greeks did. And uh, truth will be cast to the ground; it will thrive and prosper. So the Greek persecution of uh, Judaism will be successful in the short run. And that, of course, is what happened in the, uh, in, in the build-up to the Maccabean Revolt, as I'm sure you must have some idea. I'll just use the cliche of Khan and the Seven Sons, but I mean, everything goes along with that. So the Greeks are successful. The, so this is the dream he's seeing, 
And then he heard, it says he heard a holy one talking, meaning he taught one angel talking to the other angel in the dream. And, the, and one angel says to the other angel, how long is this supposed to be? Meaning, how long will it be that the the carbon tummit is discontinued? <coughs> and there's an idol on the um, uh, on the Mizbech. Uh, Daniel, or an angel in this book, can, as a firm Jew, or as an angel, cannot bring himself to say the words, there's an idol on the Mizbech in the base of Mizbech. It's like unthinkable even to use those words. The most he can say is a not nice thing, a, sh- uh, a pesha shomeim, a mute abomination, uh, which is the language you find, by the way, in the uh, Book of Maccabees 1. But Kodeshava, how long will the holy things be trampled and crushed? And one angel says to the other, well, guess what? Welcome to the book of Daniel, my friends. Uh, it's one of those uh, um, riddles. He says, uh, evening, morning, 2300. Go figure out you know, exactly what that means there. I'm not going there right now. And then things will be better. And so as, as a result, he asked the angel Gabriel to explain what's going on. And Gabriel says, Beferish, in the Pasuk, right? In chapter 8, in, in verse 20, uh, Gabriel says, the ram that you saw in the dream was Persia. And the he-goat, the unicorn, the he-goat was the king of Melech Yavon. It says those words. And the horn that stuck out of his head, meaning the unicorn itself. So there you got it, Alexander the Great. I mean, the Pasuk says it. Okay, The first king of Greece means Alexander the Great. And the angel says that the horn broke off and four little horns came in its place. Be succeeded by four kingdoms. And that's what happened to Alexander's empire, the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire, the Cassander Empire, and so forth. And then, And as time goes on, There will arise a king, and here you have Antiochus IV. Will be an Azus upon him, will be brazen. Well, we can understand that, right? Umaven Chidos, and he'll understand riddles, whatever that means. Okay? But he's saying, now listen to this. He will become tremendously powerful, not through his strengths. He will wreak incredible destruction, prospering and thriving as he destroys the mighty ones and the holy people. So this is undertaken to mean, now some understand it to be Rome, but many unfortunately say this is the, the, the Maccabean persecutions. By his cunning, he was deceived, will succeed. He'll grow haughty, and will destroy multitudes dwelling in tranquility. Meaning he will kill all these from Jews, which is what happened in the Hanukkah time. But without a hand laid on him, he'll be broken. Meaning he will die without violence. And in the story in the book of Maccabees 1 and Maccabees 2 is he gets a, a stomach cancer. Dies a, a bitter death that way. And so that's the dream Daniel has. So here you have pretty much an explicit reference to the Melch Yavon and the Malchus, Melch Yavon Arisha and all the rest of it. Uh, it doesn't say the words of Hanukkah, but it pretty, pretty doggone talks about the Greek persecution of the Jews, and that only happened at the time of Hanukkah. The other Greek kings didn't bother the Jews. So, uh, there you have it. Now, I'm not done. That was chapter 8. And then you go to the grand vision in Daniel, and this is uh, really a difficult business. And here we talk about um, what you find at the end of Daniel, chapters, I think... Uh, 10 through 12, I believe, where he has this long, grand 
nevuah, you might say, or vision, which takes several chapters to describe. And uh, the first chapter is the, is the warm-up. And then chapter 11, that's when I would call your attention to in the book of Daniel, he starts going through the history of the Seleucid Empire. I kid you not. Uh, the angel, Gabriel, Gabriel tells, this is the only book where angels are mentioned by name. I'm going to tell you as a fact, Gabriel says in chapter 11, another three kings will arise for Persia, the fourth will have great wealth, and he will rouse everyone against the kingdom of Greece, meaning that's king, uh, what's his name, Xerxes. And then a mighty king will arise, will do whatever he pleases, that's Alexander the Great. And his peak, his king will break apart and be divided according to the four corners of the earth, like we said before. When Alexander dies, it'll go to his successors. And uh, uh, it'll, it goes on and on and on until finally he talks about the two kingdoms uh, of the Greeks. Meaning, we're, to be exact, we're talking about the Macedonians, not the Greeks. We're talking about the successor of Alexander the Great, who in the Middle East broke into two teams. One was called Ptolemy team, because one of Alexander's generals was Ptolemy. And when Alexander was dying, he ran away to Egypt and took over Egypt and founded a dynasty of pharaohs for a couple hundred years. So it's Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy III, and so forth, and all the women are called Cleopatra. And, uh, and then there's the Seleucid Empire. Another general of Alexander's was Seleucus. It's a complicated story, but by the time the dust settles, Seleucus has a big chalik of the left of the empire, what you and I would call the Middle East, not counting um, Egypt. And the Egyptians actually grab Eretz Yisrael, and there are fights over it. And for some reason... In the book of Daniel, in chapter 11, the history of the Seleucid-Tolemaic empires in regards to the conquest of, of Palestine is told in great detail. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. When you uh, get to this part, chapter 11 and 12 in the book of Daniel, it's extremely weird, and the Mepharshim divide into two general uh, schools of thought. One would be the Mepharshim who, I would put it this way, were secularly educated, and if they knew their their basic Greek and Roman history, classical history, and they could apply the psukim to classical events. This would be like the Malbim, the Barbanel, um, I don't know, some other people also. And uh, it's interesting, you know, they, uh, they'll they uh, say, when this king did this, it means Antiochus II did this to Ptolemy III, you know, and, and so forth. I mean, they got a, a, a reference to the marriage of Bernice, Berniki, to, who was it, uh, she's the sister of Ptolemy III, Ptolemy Eurgates, and he has to rescue her because it's a riot in Antioch. I mean, it's a level of detail, like, who cares? So it's all part of this. And in the course of that, um, there's a reference, finally, to Antiochus III, and more importantly, Antiochus IV. Okay, Antiochus IV, which is the, 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 the villain of Hanukkah. So I'm looking at chapter 11 in the book of Daniel, and let's see, it'll be Pasuk, what? Try to collect the Hebrew and English for you. Uh, verse 20, Pasuk uh, Chav, uh, okay? And here it says, again, having gone through the various Seleucids, believe me, he goes through Seleucids the first and the second, and Demetrius this and that and the other. And then he says, V'amad al-Kano, and then to arise to the throne of the Seleucids, Ma'avir Nogesh Heder Malchus. One, uh, who will uh, be the splendor of kingship and remove the oppressor. But he'll be broken in a few days, not by anger or war. That's actually the predecessor of Antiochus IV. That's his brother Seleucus IV. So then, in verse 21, we get to our stuff. V'yaman al who will take his place? Nivse, a disgusting person. V'lo nasa al someone who doesn't deserve. He's a vile man. 
who does, uh, the majesty of kingship will not have been confirmed. You know, so he'll grab the malucha. You understand? He'll grab the malucha. He will come professing peace and seize the kingship through guile. So he'll be sneaky. The sweeping force will be swept over before and be destroyed, including the prince of the pact. Which means that he'll come and eliminate all the uh, opposition. And he'll do it also, by the way, through chalaklakos, meaning through uh, glib talk. You understand? Now, listen closely. After doing as he pleases, he will return to his land, and then he'll invade the south, meaning he'll try to conquer Egypt. This is Antiochus IV. Uh, but it won't be, won't happen, because ships of Kitim, meaning the Roman navy, will come again and be foiled. He will retreat, and this really happened. Antiochus IV had a war with um, Egypt. He wanted to conquer it, and the Romans prevented this. And he was so angry, plus he had to pay the soldiers, they had payroll problems. So on the way back, he attacks Jerusalem. So the Pusik says, in verse 30, ships of Ketim will come against him, will be foiled. He will retreat and vent his rage against the Holy Covenant. So what, is that, what, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. He will attack the base of Megas, he'll attack Jerusalem. Now, he owned the city, but he had the needed money, as he puts over here. Bizaam al bris kodesh, we also. Bishavi yavin al ozme bris kodesh. And then he will do a deal with the Misyavnim. Ozve bris kodesh. Those who abandon the bris kodesh which literally means, of course, uh, they stopped circumcision, as I think many of us know. But in addition to that, they were just bad Jews. They were against the Torah altogether. And then what happens? Forces greater than his will arise, okay, and desecrate the sacred fortification. Uh, it's not clear who that's referring to. But then he'll abolish the daily offering, meaning, like we said before, he'll uh, do what the Greeks did in the base of Migdash. They, they, they stopped the... Um, the Karm um, Tamid, and they put an idol on um, a lifeless abomination, as he calls an idol, on the base of Migdash, on the altar. With smooth words, he will seduce transgressors of the covenant. Look at that. He will kiss up to the Misyavdim. Okay? Marshia Bris, Yachnif Bechalakos. Those are Marshia Bris, where he will uh, flatter Khanifa with, uh, with smooth words. The from will try to hold out. There will be rabbonim, martyrs, who will try to make the public understand, meaning they'll try to give a Torah-dick interpretation of what current events. They'll be wiped out. Meaning, that Antiochus will go after the from and destroy them. So in other words, this is a reference to the Maccabean persecutions, to the Antiochian persecutions. And then when they Stumble, meaning when things are at rock bottom, Yeyazru uh, Ezermat, they'll get a little bit of a help. And that would mean that uh, the Maccabean revolt. And what is he going to say? That, um, he, uh, uh, how's it work over here? Many will join the enemy's ranks as a result of their wiles. So basically, the, the Hanukkah War is a civil war between one set of Jews and the other, with, the, with Antiochus pulling the strings. So this is really rough. And then he goes on to say that the persecutions will be so bad, um, and I don't want to get you sick over here, but if you read in the book of Maccabees, you'll see like they burned, the, they fried kids in the, you know frying pans, and they took white hot balls and uh, put them on the people's armpits, all kind of stuff. So uh, even the frum will crack, as he says over here. Uh, so basically, God was 
saying, let's see who's really, 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 really true and blue, who's really, 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 really from, even under worst tortures, and therefore the knowledgeable will stumble, but they'll be refined, purified, and waiting before the time of the end, for this appointed time at the end. Meaning, this will be, uh, you know, a, a really tough time. And that did happen. I don't want to give you all the details, but let me just call your attention, if you take the trouble to read the book of Maccabees, you will see that uh, the Iker persecutions and tortures took place after Hanukkah. Meaning, even after Judah Maccabee captured the temple, the, the Greeks and the Hellenists made a comeback later on, and then it says, it was a, a, a time, in the book of Maccabees, it was a time of persecution uh, worse than it had been before. And it was pretty bad before. Notice, it'll be worse than Khan in the seven sons' time. And then the Pussy goes on to say, in verse 36, The king will do whatever he pleases. I'll call El, and I'll make him so greater than any god. Well, that's exactly Antiochus IV. And he will speak crazy things about a mute god. And he will, uh, what will he do over there? He will prosper until God's fury is spent. Uh, he will give no thought to the God of his own ancestors, which means he won't even worship the Greek gods because he declared himself a God. I think you might know that. And to him, the love of self was greater than the love of women. He's not into any other God. He considered himself greater than any alcohol. Uh, all this perfectly fits Antiochus. He will honor the god of fortifications with gold and silver. He will erect his strongest fortifications, and he will lavish honor on those he's chosen to recognize, meaning he'll kiss up to the Messiavdim, to the Hellenists, appointing to rule over the multitude and a portion of land for a price. And then the Pusik switches to other stuff, to the Messianic era, uh, which is why it's always hard to read chapter 11, 12, and in Daniel, because in the middle it switches to stuff that hasn't happened yet. Whatever I read you until now, at least according to many Mepharshim, there's no unanimity in this, is clearly referencing the rise of the Greeks, the uh, reign of Antiochus IV, the religious persecutions which precede the Hanukkah story, even a little bit of reference to Maccabean revolt, emphasis being on the tortures that Jews are going to suffer as part of the process of winning out those who are really true and blue, those who are really from. Uh, now, it doesn't go into detail, but my point is like this. If this was written before Hanukkah happened, uh, when was Daniel in relation to Hanukkah? That, you get into that famous uh, controversial question about the Persian Gulf, the missing 160 years. But uh, it's before it, you know. Let's just say, for according to regular history, it's about uh, 150, 200 years before it. And you already see, foreseeing, uh, the essential elements of what comes to be Hanukkah. So all I'm trying to tell you is, so when Hanukkah actually occurred, they could say, wow, this is uh, foretold. And that must have been Mechazek, uh, the from Jews, that uh, paid such a bitter price uh, in the Maccabean Wars, even though it was sort of successful in the end. It took a long time. Generations were fighting. It didn't happen in one generation. Several generations were continuing fighting until finally... In the time of John Hercules, you might say the Jews finally prevailed and established a kingdom that was totally free of the Greeks. So this is what I mean when I say Hanukkah is a biblical holiday. That they're pretty doggone clear or pretty clear references to Yavon, to the persecution of the Jews, to the unicorn, to the fact that uh, Alexander will have one of his successors, a brazen person 
who will cause a lot of trouble, and who will hook up with traitorous Jews. What is he? Mashiach, you know, Mefa Bris. Uh, all this is exactly as we know what happened. If you're not from, how do you explain that Daniel do all this? Well, they'll post-date Daniel. They'll say it's written afterwards. You know, that's that's what they do in biblical criticism. But if you, <laughs> that's an easy way out. But if you are from, you know, Daniel, it was written in the time of uh, the Persians. So how do you know all this? Uh, this is quite remarkable. In my opinion, uh, once you know this, you, th- there's probably a reason why the Chazal took the uh, Hanukkah so seriously. Because it's not biblical exactly, but as you know and I know, Hanukkah is the only holiday from the Megillus Tinus. From all those dates mentioned in the famous document, the Megillus Tinus, that has survived and hasn't been bottled. And uh, if it hasn't been bottled because they saw this as having a, it's not a derise, of course, and it's not even like Purim with its own book, but it's kind of, uh, but it's not bereft of any biblical reference. The Bible does have references to it, the Tanakh. The Ksubim does have references to it. And then endows it, you might say, with a more special character and a greater permanence. And I would suggest that that's the reason why, uh, it's only a guess, that the reason why Khan has such a long-standing, uh, you know, a run. Because uh, there are many other holidays in the Megillus Tinus that have to do with Maccabean victories. Just off the top of my head, uh, what you and I call um, Tinus Esther today really used to be Yom Nicanor when Judah Maccabee achieved a spectacular victory over a large Greek army led by Nicanor and killed Nicanor, a Greek general. So how can we don't remember that? Matter of fact, now it's a fast. Uh, from here you see there's something unique about the Hanukkah. And Vosep is the oil lasting eight days. Why did, that, why did that do the trick? Because they see the events of Hanukkah as foretold, foreshadowed, and therefore endowed with cosmic significance. Anyway, that's what I think. Uh, I just wanted to share a few ideas over there. And again, to thank all those that are supporting us and hope that others will step forward because we got a lot of expenses over here and uh, I hope that you will all have a Freilich uh, Hanukkah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com support.rabbidavidkatz.com